So edge out to some ice book, you'll be heavy in my mind. Can you get the heck out? I need rest now, got me bummed out. You so, you so, you, baby, baby, baby. I've been on my empty If you're new to the Unnecessary Podcast, it's just a free-flowing conversation between me and friends. Talk about all kinds of things like politics and philosophy and music and memories and everything in between. Um, I want to introduce my guest today. It's my lovely friend, Eli. Hey, Eli. Hey. Hello. Sorry, I had you on mute and now you're off mute. Hi, Eli. (laughs) Hi, AJ. Thanks for having me. Sure. So we're listening to Good Days by SZA. Um, why did you pick this song for us? Um, I think that one, her music video just came out and she's just so lovely. And I always have been listening to this song. It's been my jam lately. So I think that anyone who hasn't heard this song needs to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, do you have like a favorite genre of music or a kind of music that you always listened to growing up or? Uh, growing up, I listened to a lot of Arabic music. And like now that I'm an adult, I do listen to a lot more English stuff. Um, I really love like R&B, hip hop, uh, indie rock. I like pretty much everything except for country and EDM. <laughs> <laughs> and you're from California, right? Originally, Yeah, I'm from SoCal originally. Um and I moved out to Colorado maybe like a year and a half ago, August of 2019. I moved out here for grad school. Um, not sure how long I'll be here. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I don't, I also don't like country music or most kinds of country. And I think that's yeah. pretty rare. I think most like ge- ge- geographic areas around the country have tons of people that like country. Um, yes. But that's interesting that neither of us like it. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's just like a very acquired taste. You know, it's kind of like beer. You either love it or you hate it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I like bluegrass. Do you like bluegrass? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's funny how that's like different. They're so different, though, because they're rooted in different traditions, right? So like bluegrass comes from like underground um, music scenes typically is like made by black creators and like country is a little bit different, right? It's very white centric, usually about some guy talking about Mm. a sheepdog and a farm and his Mm. divorce. And I'm like, not interested. It feels very white centric. It just, it feels like how like Caucasian cooking tastes. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like it doesn't have the spice. describing it yeah yeah and I think there are pockets of country music right that are not as bad but I think overall it's just not for me and like kudos to you if it is for you but I can't personally relate yeah um Eva my partner loves country music and so I like now listen to country as part of the relationship (laughs) and as part of my life but I've I it's I love learning about you know anything and I can put a sociological lens on anything and it's I've learned so much about about um women in country music and also the the stories that they tell in country music are very much tied to like old Scots-Irish um Mm. like tales like fiddle music like that existed in Appalachia and it it there are some roots with with bluegrass but like you said it is it is different 
Totally. And I think that's like the beauty of music, right? It's like you can find these little pockets that are better. Like when I was younger, I used to fucking love Carrie Underwood. Are you kidding? (laughs) But like now I'm just like, "Mm, I could do without not Carrie Underwood specifically, but just country in general. Yeah. I love like the SoundCloud era that we're living in where I'm listening to people that don't have are not signed to anybody. And like, I would have never been able to hear them and maybe they'll never become popular, but I just, I'm like, Oh my God, I love this like hip hop riff that this one's do or whatever. You know, I really like that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think like, it's really magical that we all have like these different platforms that like we can connect with each other on. Right. Like, um, SoundCloud is incredibly accessible to like so many people. And so like, it really opens up this new world of like, you don't have to like be popular for somebody to know about you, which is really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have so many questions for you. (laughs) I'm ready. I love questions. Why did you move to Colorado? Yeah. So I moved here for grad school. Um, I'm getting my master's in social sciences right now. And uh, I have about another year after this year. Um, But ultimately I think I just like, wasn't happy in California, you know, like, it's very like surfer and exercise culture. And I'm like, really not into that. Um, (laughs) and I personally like really love the winter and like, I love fall and we don't really get a lot of seasons out there. You know, it's just pretty much hot all year round. (laughs) And for me, I was just like looking for a change of pace and I definitely feel like I've gotten that. Um, yeah, I, I think there are pros and cons to living anywhere. Um, but I'm really enjoying my time here. For sure. Cool. Yeah. I, I really love living here, moving from the Northeast. Um, I never realized how conservative the culture was like in DC and New York. Oh yeah. And, um, I love how people in Denver are encouraged to be weird and not in like a cool way, as I like to say. So, yeah. Yeah. I feel like everyone's just kind of doing their own thing here, which I really appreciate, you know, like I feel like um, California gets like this rep of being like super progressive and cool and whatever, but like there are major pockets of like conservative areas and like the suburbs are not fun, (laughs) but I think that's like across the board. I don't think it's specific to California. Um, and so I think it's like really cool, like feeling this different change of like culture and environment. But I also think that there's like lots of major problems here, just like in California. I think they exist everywhere. Um, but yeah, I totally agree with you. I think like there's a lot more of like an accepting environment here. Like nobody's just like judging you. Whereas like in LA, they're like, I'm going to sip my $7 latte and like spit on you. Like <laughs> I have zero desire to know anything about you. Mm. And like here, everyone's just like, do your thing. Yeah. And in DC, people won't tell you how they really feel until yeah. they, they, until they can gauge through like coded language. If you are like-minded with them. So totally. like a lot of relationships are like super surface level. Cause like people are worried about their careers and exchanging business cards. And it's like a, I just love exploring different cultures and, and yes. there's some really ugly things about parts of it, but um, I'm glad that I can like learn about it and move away from that. Totally. I feel like people in DC are very like worried about their image, especially because of like the political environment that's out there. And I'm like, so not about that. I'm a very like direct communicator. Mm-hmm. I say what's on my mind yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the time, which gets me into a lot of trouble. But you know, I feel like it's better to be direct than to be like being around the bush all the time. 
This brings me to an interesting thought about how like DC is for elite people. It's for like privileged people and that's how privileged people act. It's like, um, I'm going to smile and shake your hand, even if we're working against each other. And because life doesn't really, this doesn't really affect us. And, and, um, we're, we're born into privilege and that's so palpable. Like I've been in meetings with, I was just thinking about this dude, Mark Bloomfield, who I had to work with because, (laughs) so I used to work for, um, a government lobbying software company. Mm. And I would work with people like um, Planned Parenthood and and uh, uh, the um, ACLU and like some really awesome groups. And I told my boss, like, I only want to work with progressive groups because I'll yeah. be able to do better work. But my boss was like, my boss had a MAGA hat, the CEO of the company. And like, yeah, it was so gross. And um, so the, this board member is Mark Bloomfield and he runs this think tank whose sole goal is to eliminate the estate tax. Mm. Um, and... And I had to meet this guy multiple times in his office and he's like a multimillionaire and a big shot meets with like senators. And he had these, he had these African masks on the wall from his like travels. And I'm like, this is so like, you're such a fucking colonizer. Like you, yeah. he would be in the Dutch East India company like 400 years ago. That's what his office would be like. And I'm like, this mm. is so disgusting. And I see the patterns that we are perpetuating. Um, and I'm privileged enough to like live in this space and, and, and be, be an observer rather than um, like, I don't have a, a trauma from that to, to, make me unable to move in that world. And it's just like, it's gross and, but it interests me. And, um, I'm so glad I'm not in DC. (laughs) Totally. No, I hear you. I think that like, it takes a certain person to like half. I think that, you know, people of color have this thing where we have to code switch a lot where like when we're in professional spaces, we're expected to like, you know, be polite and like shake people's hands and stuff. And like, when I started my organization, I was really about like transparency and like being direct and like moving in alignment with like my political values and stuff like that. And I really, I don't believe in being polite to people who refuse to recognize our full humanity. And like, I can't (laughs) anymore, you know, like as a 24 year old, I'm sitting here like, I can't do this anymore. And I don't know how people have been doing it for 40, 50 years, you know, like, smiling in the faces of people who are like despicable it's it's really hard you know and I am privileged enough to like not really have to do that anymore and like you know it's like at this point in my life I guess that I don't have to do it but like things may change when I get older I don't know Mm. um but I think like it's very much so like an affect of white supremacy that like we have to like be polite in the face of like injustice consistently and they like ask us to like use nonviolent protesting, like, right. And to advocate for ourselves through laws and petitions and things that are like gentle and easy to swallow. Mm. And I'm very much so not about being that way. Yeah. 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 I, um, as I think I've told you, I'm a believer in, in karma in, in like my Mm. own way. And, I see it manifesting in terms of like how we fit into the social justice movement or the mutual aid movement or whatever um, positive activity we're doing or negative activity. But um, I see like when I look at or think about my privilege and my upbringing, I understand that it allows me to be in a position to like, to, to be in DC and like shake hands and smile and like, because I'm not emotionally affected by it, but I'm, I want to be a strong ally. 
And mm. like, I'm a lifelong member of the democratic socialists. Uh, I, I think I do the right things behaviorally. Um, mm. and so from my perspective and my karma is like, I, I think being a good ally is being the person that, that shakes hands and goes to DC and like tries to, um, meet people where they're at. Like we talk about, like, I think the final level of compassion and the final level of meeting people at where they're at is like really meeting people where they're at, even if they're at a place where like we hate them. <laughs> and, yeah. but that's my position. And I recognize that like, that's not for everybody. Like that might yes. not be for you, you know? And that's really important, right? Is like being in that place of privilege and recognizing that like, it's on y'all to do the education for the rest of the white people, right? Like, I am all about meeting people where they're at. Right. But like for somebody who's been organizing for a really long time and like, you know, really long <laughs> is so relative because I've only been on this earth for a certain amount of time. <laughs> um, but like considering like how long I've lived, like it's been a while that I've been organizing, right. And doing political education. And so I really started out in this sphere of like trying to placate white people. Right. And like meeting them where they're at. And like, now I'm really like, I see where you're at and I'm going to leave you there. <laughs> you know what I mean? I hear you. Because like, that's not for me. Right. And like, yeah. this is something that I talked with one of my professors about recently is like, yeah, I have like a deep compassion for every single person that I meet, but I'm also like, I have a deep compassion for myself and my energy. And I'm like, I, I can't meet you where you're at realistically. And like, that's not where I'm supposed to be. Right. I'm up here and like, I'll meet you when you get here gladly but like you have some growing and evolving yeah. to do before we before we can connect yeah and and the other thing about karma is like we're in my opinion we're all on our path to enlightenment but oh yes and but it's all different paths and like i don't think that you're going to be walking in my steps towards mm -hmm. your path to enlightenment so like it would be silly of me to expect you to like forcibly come over to my path because it's like that's not your way to enlightenment <laughs> that's like not your karma absolutely yeah and i wish like some more people were thoughtful about that right because i think like in social justice spaces the question that we get so often is just like why right like why should i care or like why should this be something that i want to like invest in and i'm like i don't know how to tell you that you need to give a shit about the people around you and like <laughs> that's those moments where i'm like i have to leave you there right because i i mean like i <laughs> I know that everybody's coming from a different space, right? But I can't fathom, like, not giving a shit about the humans around me, right? I so deeply care about everyone that I come into contact with and people who I haven't even met yet, right? I organize on behalf of these folks and, like, with them, right? And that's really the yeah. difference is, like, I'm not trying to give a voice to the voiceless, it's like, because they have their own voices and they have their own message and people know their needs better than people who are in power or people who are organizing. Right. Mm. And I think it's all about like working in conjunction with community. And I think so many people miss that, not like abolitionist organizers that I really admire. And I think that that's why I admire them. Right. As they do this embodied practice of like working in tandem with community members and like meeting them where they're at right mm. so like for me I believe in working for colonized people I am interested in meeting those folks where they're at because yeah. I understand what it's like to have these internalized systems right but like white folks I don't have space for y'all because yeah, yeah. the space that I'm holding 
is for colonized people. It's uh-huh. for trans folks. It's for people of all marginalized identities. And like your education and your journey is valuable, but like there's a different space for that. There are so many spaces for y'all. Yeah. And so many yeah. people, there are billions of people in the world. Like Eva, so many. I love how Eva introduced this concept to me. We're like in a properly run society, everybody has their own role that they love doing and they excel at and contributes to the betterment of society. We obviously have something far from that, but I love thinking about an optimal world, like where somebody who's, um, what's the term neural, um, uh, diverse, which Jules taught me from community care collective, like somebody on the autism spectrum, like there's obviously incredible value in having those people in like corporate settings or any kind of setting. Um, if society was run properly and this goes into the karma thing, like your space is supposed to be, you know, there's plenty of good for you to do in the space that you need to be in and the space to where you can, um, take care of yourself as well as a community. And, um, like Eva works for the federal government. Um, she works for housing and urban development and that's like a job I could never do for certain, for, for reasons of, um, rigidity. And I think mm. you might not be interested in doing that kind of work for reasons of culture. Yeah, I um, I don't think I would ever work for the government. <laughs> <laughs> I think like that's just, I always make this joke because some folks are always like, Eli for president. And I'm like, if I was ever elected to be president, I would literally step down the day I was elected. I have no desire for power or positions of power. I have every desire for a more just world. Right. So I always think that if for whatever reason I was elected president, I would reinstate indigenous sovereignty like immediately Uh because that's what I am like moving towards. Right. Is like restoring justice and giving folks their land back. And ultimately like I'm always moving in alignment with that. And so for me being president on land that's not mine <laughs> is is not moving in alignment with that. So I would never, I don't think I would ever work for the federal government if right. I had a choice. Well, um, but that, I also, yeah. you know, I was talking about this with my professor the other day, the one that I constantly am talking about. Um, her name's Dr. Sarah Tyson and she's super, super amazing. If you've never watched her talks, I would highly recommend it. Um, but I was talking to her about this, right? Because like, I do want to, I want to teach. And I think, you know, there's something to be said about like teaching on colonization and social justice in a space that is institutionally like founded in white supremacy, heteropatriarchy and all of those things. Right. Um, And she said something along the lines of like, people have to move in these contradictions, right? Because only within those contradictions can we start to push those boundaries. Right. Because if you just reject them altogether, then there's no movement that's happening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there needs to be some middle ground and like more often than not, like we are living within those contradictions, even if we don't see it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that if you could do anything in an ideal world, it would be to teach, it would be like disperse information. Yeah. I think teaching is something that I've always really loved. I love reading and studying and learning. And I think that like, 
there's so much information at our fingertips, which is why I'm consistently like, white people, why are you like this? Like you have the most access out of anybody to <laughs> yeah. like sit down and like rest and like <laughs> read, like what the fuck are you doing mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're not doing all these things? It is not on colonized people to teach you. Like yeah. you can educate yourselves because there are <laughs> so many colonized people who have published books, articles, podcasts, movies, po- like documentaries, mm. all of this stuff for you to learn. And then you're still sitting there like, educate me, educate me. Yeah. How dare you? Mm. Um, so I think like if, you know, we were living in a non-capitalist society and I didn't have to do something to pay the bills, I right. would really be interested in working in any kind of community space for sure. But I think political education is so important to me and it's like at the root of everything that I do. Cool. Yeah. If I I could do anything, I would be an entertainer. I would do like a, like a nightly show or something like a host. I think you'd be an amazing entertainer. Thank you. Well, that's why, that's why I started this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, I would totally listen to your podcast. What the heck? Yeah. Yeah. A few years ago, because I am so fortunate to like have my needs met and be able to take time to introspect. I was thinking like, what if I could do anything in that ideal world, what would I want yeah. to do? And so I was like, man, I would have like a, I would be like a, a Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel kind of character. Yeah. And so I'm like, yeah. well, I should have like a podcast. And like, I just, I'm lucky enough where I'm like, I should just do it. Like I need to be one of these people that like does things. Mm, <laughs> I hear that. Too. I hear that. Um, I think that so many people are, I've learned that, um, just like recently in the last five years that so many people don't, um, don't, um, use logic holistically. They like use logic selectively to reinforce like a previously, um, conceived notion and like the way to change a lot of people's minds is emotionally and like not through rationality. And that's the gateway into, into their mind is like through their heart. Yeah. I mean, that's the hope. Right. But like, I totally hear what you're saying where like people cherry pick like arguments. And I think that's like the same thing when we think about like religion, right? (laughs) People cherry pick things like out of the Bible and I'm not religious, so I can't like give you an example, but like, it's really interesting to see the way that people will rationalize decisions or stances or positions that they take by like, just taking like a small excerpt, like out of context. Right. And like completely ignoring everything that's around that one passage. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I totally hear that. It's very interesting. And I do think that like emotional appeals definitely work in some ways. And I also think that it really depends on who you're talking to. Cause some people are like, you're emotional and like, that's stupid. And like, I think your argument is less valid because of the fact that you're using emotion. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking mostly about like men in that case. Cause they're like mm. rationality above everything. And I'm like, no, <laughs> but they're not like inherently different. Right. Like, and this is something that Audre Lorde talks a lot about in her work is that like poetry and academia are so closely linked. And I think people like to think about poetry as art and separate from intellectualism. And she really challenges us to think about, everything holistically, right? She encourages us to embrace wholeness. Mm -hmm. Um, That's like a a line from like the beginning of Sister Outsider, which if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. (laughs) Sister Outsider? Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna type that in for later. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, anytime. Cool. 
Um, that reminds me of Buddhism because everything reminds me of Buddhism. A few things you said remind me of. Do you do you study Buddhism or like do you? Okay, so I do you, not. I think that's you. This is why I'm, I believe in you as a leader because you <laughs> embody really kind. You, Thank you. Know, you. <laughs> you embody these ideals that like I study um, mm. in Taoism or Chan Buddhism, which is like the Chinese version of Zen, which is what I consider mm. myself. Um, but I believe that a, a Buddha, when offered um, the role of leader, would like refuse it. Yeah. Um, uh, or possibly if they were a bodhisattva, maybe they would work to dismantle it. A bodhisattva is like somebody who can achieve enlightenment, who chooses to not. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I loved what you said about that. And then um, I don't, oh yeah, we were talking about the emotional appeal of people. I don't remember what was, what reminded me about Buddhism with that, but this reminds me of my own family. And I told you I have like a pretty conservative religious family. Um, but I have a niece who is a trans girl and is eight years old. And I've had conversations with my mom where she was like, I, I don't think I would understand this nearly as much if I didn't have a granddaughter who, who was like this. And, um, like, she, I, I don't know if she said this explicitly, but like in my interpretation, she would probably be against like gender fluidity or, or gender non-binary concepts or, or um, trans concepts because of her like conservative religious background. And it was like this emotional, like having this person that she loves in her life. Um, and I was, I've been thinking about how my, sister and and this trans niece that I have they live in Maryland in a county that voted for Trump like by 60 percent mm. in 2020 and um I Eva foresees it not being a problem until Kaylee my niece wants to play high school or middle school sports and and she's like outed in front of the whole school because mm. she's so young her hair is long and she's just very presenting um like a little girl that Eva's like, I think she'll be fine until some awful political bullshit comes out and like ruins her fucking high school experience. Um, and so that's like obviously bad, but thinking about karma and thinking from like a Buddhist enlightened perspective, it's also a really good thing that she's in this town because this is like an incredible opportunity to educate people. Like she's already this civil rights warrior in this town and like the, the, the neighborhood, like the block is very close. They have block parties and like they hang out. And so it's like all these other families are now adjusting their minds. And like, I think this is going to be like so good for the world. And hopefully it's not ter like, you know, hopefully it doesn't kill her to be honest. Yeah. I think like something I was thinking about when you were talking was like, do they love her? because of her transness or despite it. And I think that's really where like the distinction comes in, right? Is like loving someone as a whole being and because of all of their differences, rather than being like, this is something I don't accept, but I will accept it in this case because I love you. Mm -hmm. That's not love. That's right. not love. Right. It's not unconditional and so, love. Yeah. yeah. It's not a good example of love. And I right. think, um, there's a lot of pressure placed on trans kids, right? To 
be these whole versions of themselves when they're just kids and like they should be able to play and like discover new ways of being and presenting and feeling Mm. and not have to placate to the adults in their life right because that forces us to grow up so much faster and like creates like these adult children essentially like these children with such enlightened minds and I think part of it comes from embodiment right like being trans you feel everybody who's come before you who was trans right and remembering all of the people who have come before us is really important to see where we're going but I think also too like it's really important for someone like your niece to have someone like you in her life who's like I love you as you are. And like, I hope that you really embrace your childhood and not focus on educating people around you because that's not your job. (laughs) Your job is to be wholly yourself. That's good advice. Thanks. I will. Yeah. I will be sure to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Fortunately. Yeah. Fortunately she, she does have a relatively like normal little life and be, and because of COVID, I think this allowed her to have, um, a transformation in like a more comfortable way. Totally. There's like a lot of studies right now that's happening about like how people are playing or discovering like gender expression and like their gender identity during COVID because they're not being perceived by other people. Right. Yeah. And like, I can't tell you how freeing that is like as a trans person pre COVID, like Mm -hmm. not having to interact with men on a daily basis who like misgender me every day is like, really life affirming (laughs) and like it seems so basic right just like refer to somebody like how they want to be referred to but I think too like people dismiss the small things like oh don't get so sensitive about like gender stuff I'm like I get that maybe it doesn't matter that much to you but it matters a lot to some people and like I think you like again like you said meeting people where they're at someone expresses to you that they care a lot if you refer to them by their correct pronouns, I think you should make an effort to do that. Because it's also like, what do you lose by doing that? Right? Mm -hmm. You lose nothing by treating people with integrity and care and respect. Yeah. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about this a lot, this concept of gendered language and like, I've, I've grown to understand my contempt for the, for the English language and like essentially all languages. Yeah. Um, which also, by the way, ties back to Buddhism. The first line of the first chapter in the Tao Te Ching is um, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao, which means like the mm-hmm. words on this paper are not like the ultimate truth. This is just like what I'm able to say as like an imperfect human. Um, 100%. And so I, I want to say this really long quote that I shared with you from this article because it, it, um, is how I'm thinking right now. So this article said, um, okay, how do I say hegemony? Hegemony? This is one of these words that I've never... Hegemony. Okay. I I love words that I've read a lot and I've never said. Yeah. Yeah. The hegemony of binary gender negatively impacts everyone, whether they identify within, outside of, or in opposition to the binary. Surely one does not need to be trans or non-binary to feel constrained by traditional gender norms or uncomfortable with the English language's constant gendering, which is unnecessary at best and violent at worst. That that mm. phrase stuck in my mind for like weeks. Yeah. Um, and so do you agree with this um, quote? Oh, yeah. I definitely think that like 
we unnecessarily gender things constantly, right? Like even when talking about period care products, like I hate when people call them feminine hygiene products. There's nothing feminine about having a period. (laughs) Anyone of any gender can have a period. Periods are not cute. They're not soft and gushy and flowers and playing tennis or whatever the fuck. Like they're not fun. They're a very real part of our lives. And anyone of any gender can have a period. There's nothing feminine about it. Yeah. Right. And like, that's just such a simple example. Right. But there's so many different ways to think about this. Mm -hmm. And I think like everything is unnecessarily gendered. Right. Okay. So I'm, I'm cis, if you will. Yes. Yeah. But (laughs) I, and obviously like I'm still learning. I'll be learning my whole life till the day I die. Um, If like, I would like to ask people to refer to me with they, them pronouns, or is that inappropriate for me to do as somebody, I just want to be a strong ally and I hate the English language. (laughs) Yeah. So I think like people get really tripped up about pronouns, right? So like pronouns are not a trans thing. Everybody uses pronouns and what pronouns you choose to use are not reflective of your gender expression, right? There are non-binary people who use she, her pronouns. There are non-binary people who use he, him pronouns. There are non-binary people and trans people who use all pronouns, right? Interchangeably. And so I think like we need to dismantle this notion that only trans people can use they, them pronouns. And I think too, something that's really important to think about is like, If you don't know someone's pronouns, you should use neutral pronouns until you know that person's pronouns, right? Or simply ask. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that people always are confused about. They're like, I don't want to be rude by asking someone their pronouns. Like, what is rude about asking somebody what they want to be referred to as? Mm -hmm. I don't understand how that could ever be construed as rude. It's, it's, I understand why it's, I, I'm very uncomfortable about with this Um, because and so I understand people mis misidentifying rude and discomfort um, yes. because they're both like social norms that are, that are outside of the norm. Um, 100%. And so I feel really uncomfortable about this because like we've known each other for like almost two months and mm-hmm. ev- we've, we've, we do business together and like none of our conversations are relevant to our gender. <laughs> um, <laughs> Never. And, and so like, it's so annoying and shitty and fucking enraging that like I need to like start a, a, a relationship with you, like a business relationship with you. And like the first thing we need to talk about is something that's like has nothing to do with business. And yeah. that's what that's what led me down the spiral. Um, so do can I should I put he slash they? Is that appropriate on my Zoom name? What it's appropriate if you feel like that's indicative of how you feel about yourself and how you want to be referred to. Yeah, I really do. I'm so sick of it. And like, also like since interacting with more people who use they pronouns, um, it's like, at first it was really hard for me, um, mm. because I wasn't used to using singular they, um, it was easier for me to start referring to my niece with, with, um, girl pronouns. Um, yeah. also because I, oh, I always saw, I also always saw her as a girl, but, but because it's binary, it was easier, I think. Totally. Um, that totally yeah. makes sense. And but because now, like, I think we're pushing people to think about things outside of the binary. Right. And they're like forced, like they're forced to dismantle this idea that there's two or three genders. Right. Yeah. Because like, this is something that non-binary people talk a lot, like talk about a lot is like not non-binary as in a third gender. 
right? It's not mm. female, male, non-binary. That's mm. not, that's not it at all. Mm. It's like, there's a whole spectrum, right? And male and female are on one end and in the middle, there's all these other things. Mm-hmm. And I think like people just need to really explode their idea of like what gender is, mm. right? And it comes from colonialism, right? We know that. Mm. There's a historical point at which people start thinking about gender in a binary sense. There have always been people who subvert gender in all cultures pre-colonization, and they were violently erased through colonialism. And so I think it's really important to remember that like non-binary is not a new thing which I tell people all the time, it's not a new thing. And it's not, it's not meant to fit neatly in this way that we've constructed gender. It's completely about dismantling this idea that there are only two genders, right? And scientists mm. have continued to tell people that there are no, there, there's not only two genders. Yeah. At, at some point, that's what they thought, but mm. that's not what they think anymore. Mm-hmm. especially if we're thinking about chromosomes, there's so many different connections and patterns that they've observed. There are so many different genders and people are still like, well, science says mm-hmm. like, now you want to believe in science <laughs> all of a sudden. Now yes, you believe right. in science. That's right. So selective. <laughs> Cherry picking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And language obviously changes. Oh my God. There's this um, accent expert on YouTube who does these, like he looks at movie stars who do like different accent roles, but then he does this like tour of the U S. Um, and in this tour of U S accents, he has, um, people of color speakers come on to talk about like New York Latin English, um, which has like a light L versus like, Mm. or versus like the, the New York that like my family would speak, which has like a very heavy L as they say linguistically. Mm. So this is amazing, but, um, language changes and also linguists don't know why language changes, which I think is very interesting. They just know that it does. Um, so like in New York a hundred years ago, people used to drop their, their R's like, what's y'all, what's y'all name kid? You know, like that transatlantic kind of thing a little bit. And like Bernie Sanders, like the millionaires and billionaires. But yeah. now New Yorkers don't say that. And so I think in a hundred years, potentially people would just not be saying he and her, and we can just all say they, like, it's just easier to say they and them. It's grammatically fine. The English language is filled with loopholes and exceptions, which is, I think another reason people get confused with they, them pronouns because it's singular, but people want to conjugate words around it as if it's plural sometimes, like they're confused. And it's like, don't worry, don't, don't worry about rules. The English language is stupid. Exactly. That's always what I tell people, you know, like my, my roommate's dad, um, when he found out I use they, them pronouns, like he is, he's very supportive, right? He's a cis man, but he was very supportive. And he's like, I'm really proud of they, and I like didn't correct him because I was like, fuck it. You're trying. Like, I don't care about grammar. Like Mm -hmm. as long as you are making an effort, that's all that really matters to me. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to sit here and correct you ever. And I was an English professor and I was like, you guys can mess up your grammar as much as you want. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Language adapts with culture. Right. And like, I Mm -hmm. think people, especially like professors, right. Like there's like this punishment around, like, if you get something wrong, like you get docked points. And I don't really believe in that. I don't think that people learn in a punitive way, Mm -hmm. which I think is a big reason that I'm an abolitionist, but I, I think it's really interesting to think about like teaching in a holistic manner that really encourages people to like want to learn and not because of the fact that they want to get a higher grade, but just because of the fact that you're like presenting them with this information that's new. 
Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, did you grow up with religion? Yeah. So my parents are Syrian Orthodox Christians. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And I went to Bible school and like all of that stuff, which I think is really interesting, like as an adult to think about, but I, from a very young age was like, I don't really like this. I'm not, I'm not really into this, <laughs> you know? And uh-huh. I didn't really get why until I was like way older. And I was like, yeah, I don't really like rules. Mm. I don't like following stuff. I've always been a disruptor. <laughs> and like, I think that that's really fun in some ways. And also like was very stressful for my parents because they were like, why can't you just be like a normal girl? And I'm like, mm. <laughs> yeah. my little trans ass was like, <laughs> uh-huh. I was you know, really rebelling against a lot of things that I didn't realize until I was way older, like why I was. Hmm. And I think too, like, it's just really interesting growing up in a very rigid situation where like, I wasn't really allowed to explore. Mm -hmm. And I think like now as an adult, I still find myself like to be very spiritual. And I like really believe in like past lives and like reincarnation and like my ancestors and like connecting with them and like, being connected to the earth and like the world around us. But I don't necessarily know that I believe in like a God or like heaven and hell, but I I definitely think that there's some spirituality that I'm like really interested in delving more into. Well, I would love to try and convert you to Buddhism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I had so many thoughts, but Eva would had this hilarious and very insightful thought that, if she lived three or 400 years ago, she would have probably become a nun, even though she's an atheist and like the most from the most atheist progressive family. And, and she was like, it's like, you don't have to deal with fucking men. Like you're kind of like hands off, you're off limits. You can just like, you're allowed to read. Like you're, you're given so many privileges that, that you wouldn't possibly be. And we talked about, she would either be that or she would marry somebody like super rich and powerful um, but, and like be able to like wield power somehow, you know, um, th- those were the two options for her. <laughs> oh, totally. I think if I like was born like however many years ago, it depends really on like where, <laughs> right. And also when, but I think too, if I had to, I would totally like murder my husband, like yeah, yeah. would poison them 10 out of 10, yeah. take their power, take their money. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> that's the only way I would survive it. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we live now. Now is the best yes. time to live. Yeah. I honestly like, I always think that it's like a very white thing to be like, Oh, I wish that I was born in like this era. Right. Because like, yeah, you know, like yeah. 50, 60, 100 years ago, is not good for people of color. No. Um, but I think I am very interested in going like way, way back, like pre-colonization, like what our societies look like, I think would have been very interesting mm-hmm. to see and be a part of for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I was read, I read a series of articles and I think it was psychology today about hunter gatherer societies. And like, there are currently hunter gatherer societies, which is so cool. Like you don't have to talk about them in the past tense and what they would have done. Um, but, and then also I told you, I read the indigenous people's history of the United States and like, gosh, I learned like they had this thing where like they would, they didn't keep livestock. 
um, which is one of the reasons that they got wiped out in epidemics um, Mm -hmm. because human livestock interactions was what made like Europeans more, um, you know, resistant to smallpox, essentially smallpox is from camels. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I learned that they controlled the Buffalo population to like swell and be like 10 times the size that it naturally would have been through controlled fires and like moving them on these giant highways that were like 40 feet wide to the East coast. And that's like why Buffalo, New York's named that. Um, and yeah, the, the harmony that they were able to like achieve mixing, um, like human management, uh, with, with natural sort of processes. Yeah. So I think one thing that I want to point out is like indigenous people are still here today. Right. So we don't want to talk about them in a past sense because they still exist and are very much so the blueprint for how we can imagine a different society, right? We have been exploiting this land, like, as colonizers, right, or colonized populations that are here on stolen land, and I think indigenous people really show us, like, what it could look like to ethically, like, raise livestock, right, but, like, let them roam free in a non-corporate way, and... I think, too, like, that's really important, especially when thinking about indigenous um, cultures, foods, right? I think this is something that, like, vegans <laughs> continuously miss when it comes to their political ideologies is, like, meat is so central to a lot of colonized populations' diets, right? And, like, there are ethical ways to raise livestock and care for animals and incorporate that into our diets but i think like the problem right is corporatization and not demonizing these populations who choose to eat meat i think that's like a very important distinction to make yeah yeah there's so much context in there um Mm -hmm. yeah meat meat bad you know it's not always the yeah (laughs) and i think too like it's such a privileged take right to be like oh like everybody should be vegan first of all not everybody's (laughs) body would do well with veganism. I think like there's a lot of nuance there. Like everybody's body is built differently. Mm. And two, I think it's very white to be like, Oh, like nobody should eat meat because like a lot of cultural foods and dishes everywhere, Mm. um, have meat in them or use like broth and stuff like that. And I think too, it's really about like being holistic in our politic, right? Not getting tunnel vision by our vision where it's like, veganism is super important to me. So veganism is the only way, right? Mm. I think like people get so like cornered into these spaces where like they advocate for things that I don't think they're even meaning to. Hmm. And I'm like, you need to add nuance. These things are so important, right? Because like so many of these populations like are consistently ignored and Hmm. like they're still here, they're still living and Hmm. they're still practicing all of their cultural practices because this is their land. And like, it is not our place to tell them what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. That, and I, um, that reminds me of the idea of like equity versus equality. Like a lot of my conservative friends and I do have a lot because of where I went to college and just like my upbringing. And because we had so many shared experiences at a young age, we're very close regardless of our differing views. Um, also these are like my one Republican friend is like a, a lawyer who takes like tons of pro bono cases and does like defense attorney work. And I'm like, you know what? He's, I, I kind of, 
like him, but um, even though he's an <laughs> idiot, he's a total idiot and an asshole. Um, but anyway, a lot of my conservative friends are very preoccupied with equality and they think that like the libs are interested in equality. And I'm like, you don't understand, like I'm interested in equity. And that's a word that like I say all the time because, and, and actually my Muslim friend Shafni who lives in Sri Lanka taught me about that because he was explaining the roles, traditional roles of men and women and and he was saying like men can't give birth and that that's an example of equity for like it's not it's never going to be fully equal um like a, a male rather will never give birth um mm, but that's not true some men can give birth see and that's a yeah that's a, and that's the thing about equity like there's it's it's it changes it's amorphous and like it's very complex it's it's infinitely complex i guess is like a good way to totally yeah i think like it's again like equity is all about nuance, right? Because I, I'm sure you've seen that graphic, right? Where it's like people at a baseball game and it's like a taller, like super tall person, medium sized person and a short person. Um, and they're all behind this like chain link fence, like watching this baseball game or something. Right. And they're like, equality is just like removing the fence or removing like the boards on the fence. Right. So everyone can see from behind the fence. Equity is like providing little stools for the shorter people. So then they can see above the fence, just like the really tall person. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like really interesting to think about an equitable society. And I think too, we rely so heavily on these institutions to give us equity when we can just create it ourselves. Hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So that brings me to, I would love to talk with you about Dean Spade and this round table discussion that we, yes. that we listened to on zoom. Cause I think this relates. Um, so what you just said was, I don't remember what you just said because I have a terrible short term memory. My short term memory is so bad. Um, but this, um, so to preface this shift in conversation, Dean Spade is a writer who came out with a book called mutual aid, which I can't wait to read. But, um, you shared with me and some folks or are the rest of our Denver community fridges group, um, kind of a round table discussion or panel, uh, uh, promoting this book. Um, and I really loved what they had to say. Um, but I, 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 I loved how, um, it gave me a different perspective because like I have a much different perspective from the people on the panel. Um, totally. and I loved how it was three different people with similar, but different experiences and similar, but different perspectives. And it provided like a lot of depth. Um, and I, I just thought it was so cool. And I wanted to be the person who argued with them <laughs> and like disagreed with certain points that they made, but I understood that that wasn't the forum for that. And like, I would love to have a follow up with them, but, um, I thought it was so good. Um, do you have any thoughts about the mutual aid roundtable panel that I'm referring to, or do you want me to keep talking? <laughs> Yeah, I really loved that panel. I'm not going to lie. And I'm really interested to hear like what you disagreed with. I would be happy to like hash those things out with you. I think um, all of the people who are on that panel, Jaris, Miriam Kaba, and Dean Spade are all people that I so deeply admire and like are people who have paved the way for like abolition and transformative justice contemporarily. Um, and I, uh, today I started reading Marion Kaba's new book, We Do This Till We Free Us, and I'm really excited to continue reading it. But I think they make it so easy, I think, to, like, understand these, like, really huge concepts 
that I think a lot of people like get very intimidated by. And like, I also appreciate that they provide so much nuance to each conversation. Right. So like somebody had asked Dean Spade about like the co-optation of mutual aid by nonprofit organizations. And he was like, Yes and no, <laughs> right? Because he was like, there are some, like when we think about traditional nonprofits, right? It's very hierarchical, but there are places in which nonprofits do fit into mutual aid work, especially when we're thinking long-term and in terms of sustainability, right? Like not everybody can do this work for free for a very long sustained period of time. And like, it's really real that like in a capitalist society, we all need to make ends meet. And so I really appreciated that he provided that nuance and it was really funny when Miriam was like, people are going to say that you're an extortionist because like, <laughs> he was like, you should do this work for free, right? Like yeah, yeah. we should, we should not want to do activism to get paid. Right. But it's also like providing that extra lens of like, you got to pay your bills yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I guess like, I don't, it's not that I disagree with what they were saying is that I would like the conversation to go to, um, how, how is it, how do we make it possible to have a nonprofit do mutual aid work, uh, sim while simultaneously having the, the grassroots, um, like m traditional mutual aid that, that they were quote unquote espousing. Um, totally. And I think like, it's all about stumbling through practice, right? I think that people always think that you have to be perfect, like on the spot every single time. And I think like that really does a disservice to organizers and to mutual aid work because like it's messy and it's complicated, especially when you're doing like this new world building in the current world and society that you live in. That's very oppositional to like what we're advocating for. So I think like it's all about like accountability and trying to be accountable to the folks that you're not only serving, but that you work with. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really hard in like the nonprofit sector to organize horizontally, right? They always want to make it hierarchical. There has to be somebody who's like calling the shots. And I think like mutual aid organizing really disrupts that, right? Because we're all horizontally organized. We all bring something different to the table. There's not one person who's like telling everybody what to do. Mm -hmm. And so you, do you see hierarchy as inherently a bad thing? Always? I don't think so. No. And I think this is like why nuance is so important, right? Like hierarchy is not necessarily a bad thing. It really just depends it just <laughs> on <often> the context. <laughs> yeah. 100% depends on the context. Okay. Um, the parts that I would, I guess, like I said, not disagree with them on, but like challenge them on mm -hmm. is that I loved how they talked about, I think it was Foucault if I'm pronouncing that yes. right. Um, yes, you are. They, they talk about how um, right-wing politics often fetishize the state and, and we think of fetishizing the state as a right-wing thing, but also like anarchy Leftist, is in a way not, also fetishizes the state. Yeah, um, liberalism, liberal, more okay. likely, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I thought they were saying that anarchism fetishizes the state because potentially, you, you, because you fear it so much as an entity that is inconquerable or, 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 right. Um, yeah, exactly. It can be for sure. Right. But I, I would challenge them and say, and tell, and say that I think that they fetishize the state by being quote unquote suspicious of the nonprofit model. Mm. Um, and 
like I understand that that was the point of the panel and the point of the book. And that's why I bought the book. Cause like, I want to expand my understanding of this and like my perspective. Um, totally. I think I probably have a different personal history than the three people on the panel and my experiences completely inform my opinions on, on politics and on like nonprofit structures or mutual aid. So I'm guessing that theirs might also, their personal histories might also mm-hmm. inform um, their views on this. But there was another quote. They, um, one, of the, one of the people said that paying people for mutual aid work, quote unquote, really feels like it just guarantees rich people control what we get to do. Um, yes. And, and this reminds me of another Foucault thing they mentioned where it was something like um, inside of power structures are the keys to dismantle them. Yeah. And so that leads to a question of like, I'm, I'm agnostic as to whether dismantling a power structure is better done from within the organization or from without the organization, from within the power structure or from without it. I'm agnostic because I don't know. And I think every situation is different, but I, I don't, I don't believe in um, like poo-pooing the notion of changing the system from within simply because we don't know how the future is going to unfold. And so I want both. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think maybe I can provide a little clarity, right? So Dean Spade in that quote where he's talking about being suspicious of the nonprofit model was saying that we are right to be suspicious of the nonprofit model. But right? And then here's the but, is that the nonprofit model can work in certain contexts for mutual aid and grassroots organizing. But the traditional way that we think about nonprofits and the way that they were created was to mitigate these like really radical political organizers, right? And like contain them Mm -hmm. rather than expand the efforts that we're doing. And they can be used to expand them. But what he's saying is that we should always be suspicious of using traditional modes of institutional organizing right yeah that makes sense so i don't think that he's at all saying that like it can't work but that you always have to be on your toes about it you can't get comfortable because that's when the state is at its most powerful right is when you Mm -hmm. stop questioning these things yeah and so yeah yeah and then in relation to the foucault quote so it's coming from History of Sexuality, Volume One. <laughs> There's four because Foucault. Damn is Foucault! <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's wild, um, and he's not necessarily the easiest read. Uh-huh. <laughs> but in that in that text, he's talking about power in a different way, right? Because the way we traditionally think about power is hierarchical, right? There's power all sustained at the top and none at the bottom, and the way Foucault explains power is that it's more relational than that. So rather than thinking about power as an umbrella where it's all concentrated at the top, thinking about it as a net, right? Because power is consistently sustained through your relationships with other people. And so through dismantling it, through your interpersonal relationships, you begin to dismantle the apparatuses of the state. And because it's so subconscious, the way that we reinforce statehood and like these hegemonic ideals, Mm -hmm. right? We do it in ways that we don't even consider, right? So like, One time I was in a class and I told people I use they, them pronouns. And they were like, so this was an English class, right? I was an English professor and this was like my internship class for that thing. And somebody was like, well, is it even grammatically correct to use a singular they? And I was like, well, first of all, fuck you. (laughs) And second of all, that's like a really easy way of like 
again, reinforcing these hegemonic ideals. Like, why the fuck does it matter, even if it is grammatically correct or not? Like, this is how somebody identifies, and you should just accept that, yeah. period. Right? And so I think this is what Miriam Cabo was really getting at when she was talking about dismantling these power relationships, right? That we don't police each other, mm. right? And this is something that I think we do unconsciously, but that we need to be conscious of, right? Because the state operates in such, um, I hate to say the word nuanced again, but such nuanced ways that we don't even notice it, yeah, yeah. right? These things just seem like natural ways of organizing things, right? Mm. And they just seem like the way things are, right? And that's when the state is at its most powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense. Okay. So do you ascribe yourself to a particular political ideology? Do you label yourself? Like I label myself a libertarian socialist. Yeah. I would call myself a leftist, anarchist, abolitionist organizer. Um, those are a lot of words to say that I fucking hate the state. <sighs> I hate government institutions. I do not believe in reproducing these ideals, right? I don't, believe in capitalism. <laughs> um, and I am an anti-cop individual. So I totally believe in freeing all prisoners and dismantling the police state that we live under. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of our ideologies like overlap, probably most of them. Mm. Um, I like, I said before, I think my personal experiences really inform my opinions. And I think like living with a federal government employee for four years um, has like reinforced my faith in the importance of like people like leftists um, using the system to change it. And then as a member of the DSA, the Democratic Socialist, like we all made a commitment a few years ago to join the, to rejoin the democratic party. Um, mm. like that tens of thousands of us left the democratic party. And then we were like, you know what, let's like become County officials and, um, um, caucus members and stuff and delegates. And like, let's like take over this party. Like there's enough of us. Um, but that's always, um, like a debate. Um, so one, okay. So one other, one other thing I wanted to quote from their talk. Um, they said it's a deep quote unquote quote. It's a deep reality that having to get paid for everything really limits it. And by it, they mean, um, I guess like the passion or, or the, the pursuit of mutual aid ultimately. Um, and I disagree. I mean, I, I agree because they were, they were talking about burnout and um, also about the organization losing its like core spirit of, of like mutual aid and like turning into something else um, and people leaving. Um, but I believe in the power of like paying people <laughs> and like uplifting people. And, and it, but this is why I loved reading this and I'm so excited to read the Dean Spade's book is, um, I think that I can help organizations create new models that, that really get at all this stuff. Like, well, what if instead of paying people, you get convicts or, I mean, um, you know, ex felons who are getting out of prison and, um, house them and give them phones and give them jobs and have, 
privileged advisors or privileged volunteers, um, like teach them, like get them QuickBooks certified and teach them accounting and, and have it be like a two or three year contract or I don't know. Um, uh, and it just got me thinking about like organizations in ways that I haven't thought about before. So I didn't totally agree with everything, but like, I was so thankful that I heard it. Totally. I would recommend one listening to the talk. Cause I know you read it, but yeah. listening to it, I think is a different experience mm. because I think that at, around that same time, they were talking also about like our alienation from labor under capitalism. Yeah. Right. So like Dean Spade gives the example of like, if I make a pie for my friend and I like love making that pie, I might have the idea of like starting a pie shop. Right. And then 10 people want to order a pie. And then I'm like, fuck, why did I do this? Right. Yeah. Because yeah. you're doing something for the pursuit of money. Right. But it, it dwindles the love that you have for doing that thing. And I yeah. think it has inherently to do with capitalism and not at all to do with the fact that everybody should be paid for what they do. Right. But ultimately there should be no money at all. <laughs> capitalism. Right. Yeah. That makes not sense. be in existence in my yeah. opinion. That makes sense. Um, yeah. But to that, I say move to the bush and be a hunter gatherer. If you really <laughs> like I'm, I'm so pessimistic about society being able to change significantly ever. Um, like I've, I've decided to devote my life to preventing suffering. Um, yeah. And so I, I under, like, I, once again, I agreed with pretty much everything they were saying. And, and also, like you said, they acknowledged what I'm bringing up. <laughs> like, it's not like oh, they, 100%. it's not like they ignored what I'm saying. Um, no. so yeah, it was a really, it was a really good talk. So it's Dean Spade and it's mutual aid and it's an amazing, uh, he's an amazing person. And I can't wait to read the book. So that's, yeah. do you have, so what other thoughts do you have about this that you want to talk to me about? Yeah, I think we covered most of it. I'm not okay. going to lie. We we went through most of the talk. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that, and like, I'm so glad you brought up the the separation uh, from your labor or whatever, I forget the Marxist term, but you know. Yeah, that alienation. alienation from your labor. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm just like, I've, that's why I changed careers, um, but but also I'm going into my new career. I know that I'm going to be alienated from the labor a little bit. Um, but like I've trained my brain to be like, it doesn't like, who cares? Like you're doing it for the right reasons. Um, so, yeah. Um, and also I think we're always alienated from our labor, right? Even in ways we don't realize. And I think like there's such a disconnect between like the world that we want to live in and the world we do live in. And I think it's like really important to hold all of that at once like you can be alienated from your labor still be doing all of those things for the right reasons yeah. and also hate living under capitalism all of that can be true at once yeah, yeah. um our uh when i talked with jules last week from the community care collective who we who we both know and who hosts one of our fridges um he really enlightened me on a few things but um uh, they were talking about um the structure of a board of directors for a nonprofit and how like it's often really privileged people with master's degrees. And that also helps you get grant money. So it's like this yeah. gross self perpetuating cycle. And that relates to the Dean Spade round table discussion where that like, that's, that's how you're, that's how it guarantees rich people can control what you get to do. If you have these master's degree people 
um, who only know how to do thing one things one way and you recruit based on credentials and um, that's not the only way you have to do things. Yeah. And I think that's exactly like what he was talking about when like we're talking about the traditional nonprofit model, right? You can make nonprofit ship work for your mutual aid organization. I don't think he's discounting that at all. Right. But I think what he's heeding or like warning people against is that more often than not, when you fall into this traditional structure, you end up working to placate your like funders more than the community that you originally set out to do this work for, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're getting further and further away from the groundwork and Mm -hmm. closer and closer to the system. Yeah. Um, It's really this thinking about all this really like refreshed my thinking on how to uplift people and how to center the right people. Mm. So, um, so as, as the white savior, Dean Spade offended me terribly. as you can tell. <laughs> Yeah. And I think Dean Spade would challenge you, right. In mm-hmm. terms of thinking like, why do you want to be a white savior? Mm-hmm. Because it's my karma, Dean Spade. <laughs> but it's not your karma, right? No, I but it's not. Yes. It's my karma to uplift. Exactly. It's your karma to be in solidarity with people and to uplift them in the ways that they want to be uplifted. Right. Not to mm-hmm. save them in the way that you think that they need to be saved. Yeah. I think you would love my religion because the Tao Te Ching talks a lot about water. A lot of, a lot of metaphors are like, just be like water. Like when in doubt, like seek the low places, float, like be, be, uh, allow people to float, um, nourish people and recognize that like being soft is stronger than being hard. Um, Yes. Like there's this metaphor of, you know, waves hitting the rock. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like that's a really powerful thing to think about, right? And being easily movable. And I think that people more often than not are just so egotistical and like they need to just let it go, right? It's not about you. We are all people who can cause harm and we can all be wrong in some spaces. And I think it's all about being humble and recognizing like you don't know everything. And like we're all put on this earth to be in community with one another and learn from one another and you more likely than not do not know everything. And so like, it's really important to recognize like, oh yeah, shit. Like I'm wrong. Thank you for telling me. Yeah. Thank you for exposing me to that knowledge. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with being wrong. Yeah. Um, oh my God. It reminds me of another Dao De Jing quote. It says, um, if you want to be straight, you must first allow yourself to be crooked. And they go through yeah. a number of metaphors like that. Yeah. Um, I, okay, this is really, this is really random. I, I thought of a bad business idea recently and I, I, I've done this periodically where I just think of awful business ideas. So I would love to just present to you my business idea and, um, you can tell me if you have one or not. It doesn't matter. Cool. Um, so this, this business idea is called love after death. And this came to me because I used to joke and now I am dead serious that I would be very interested in donating my body after death to necrophiliacs because um, the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of pleasure is something that like, and uh, the the pursuit of moral pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure that like doesn't hurt others is something that like I've grown to like really value very highly. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
I don't know how many necrophiliacs there are out there. That's the crux of this business model, Eli. But um, I would like to have a nationwide, nay, international network of donors and members who pay like thousands of dollars every year to get fresh bodies. And if I sign up as a donor, I get like a monthly stipend, um, you know, and, and what does a monthly stipend do to you if you're dead? No, I get or it right get now. You get the stipend no, while you're alive. Yeah, I sign oh, okay. up right now and I automatically get like 150 bucks a month. Okay. Just as long as when I die, they can you donate your body, body to necrophilics. And there's also a secondary market. You know, if you can't pay for the gold package, Eli, I'm not an elitist. Maybe you want the secondary package. Maybe that's your thing. Anyway. You are wild. I'll yield the floor. Great idea or just good idea? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know what the market is like for dead bodies. Not going to lie. That is not my specialty. Um, I think there's a market for everything. But I think also, too, it really depends on, like, how many donors you could get. I wonder how many people would even be interested in signing up for something like that. Right. Well, Google is Could finally you meet the demand. The internet's finally failed me. I typed in how many necrophiliacs are there, and people don't want to know. That's really the thing, AJ. People don't want to know how many necrophiliacs there are, and maybe people don't want to disclose. There's a lot of stigma around this. Eli. Of course, Sorry yeah. About- there's lots of stigma around everything, but yeah, I think like um, <laughs> there's this interesting book called Sex in Public, and uh-huh. like it's not about like having sex in public. It's about like talking about sex publicly mm-hmm. right and like particularly as it relates to like homosexuality right because like we are like forced to keep it behind closed doors but i think like it really comes from the victorian era and they call them like victorian prudes which i think is funny um but i uh i forgot where i was going with this it's like really interesting to think about the ways in which that we are encouraged to talk about certain aspects of sexuality and discouraged to talk about it in other aspects. And so I think you're absolutely right in trying to dismantle stigma. I don't know anything about necrophilia or that group of people. Um, but I think like sex and sexuality is highly stigmatized. Yeah. Yeah. Highly was- stigmatized. I was lucky to take a sexuality class in college and learned about like super weird paraphilias. And I learned like the word paraphilia, um, mm. like with love, I think is what the Latin means for that. So, um, okay. um, it's different than a fetish. Like a fetish would be like you, you only, you use that exclusively to, um, pleasure yourself sexually or, or derive sexual pleasure and paraphilia yeah. is like you do it along with conventional sex or some kind of conventional sex act. Yeah. So anyway. I think the thing about fetishes too, is that it's all about power dynamics more often than not. Oh, okay. and like, yeah. Cause if you think about like most fetishes, right, it's all about exploiting power and holding power or feeling powerless for people who are very powerful people in their traditional lives and they want to take, they want that power to be taken away from them, which is why dominatrixes Mm -hmm. are so popular and they should be. Yeah. I was happy to learn. I was so happy to learn about that stuff because I would have never been exposed to it. Um, so God, that like, and it was an elective in college and I'm like, this should be fucking mandatory high school. Yeah. (laughs) There are so many things that should be mandatory. One of them being sex education, period. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah. I at least got that, but it was in high school and 
Eva was like, it's too late when you're fucking 16. Yeah. For a lot of people, it is too late. I mean, if you're having sex before 16, you're like, that's the time when you need to have the sex education because that's when you're at the highest risk. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, like we need to like re center what we think about in terms of sex education, because like, it's all about like, it's all fear-based right now. It's all about like, just don't do it. Just don't have sex or you're going to get pregnant and die. Right. Or you're going to get an STI and then like, no one's going to ever want to touch you. Right. It's everything so highly stigmatized. Mm-hmm. And I think like there are ways of doing sex education that is so nurturing and addresses people's questions and like also is inclusive of LGBTQ people. And like, I just wish that we lived in a more equitable society where these things were not (laughs) necessary for us to talk about because they would already be in existence. Mm -hmm. Do you, where do you think the world's going to be in 10 years? Do you think the world's going to get better? (laughs) That's my hope. Right. Because I think for abolitionists, we don't do this work because we think that like the world is like without possibility, right? We we're trying to build towards a more equitable future that like we would be proud to live in. Um, so yeah, I definitely do have hope for the world where it's going to be in 10 years or what it's going to look like. I have no idea, but I sure hope that we're moving towards a place of justice. Um, and I don't think we're going to get there with the current system that we're in. I don't think that Biden is going to take us there. (laughs) Great call. Biden will not take us there. Old sleepy Joe. Um, I guess the right answer to the question is like, will we be better or worse in the 10 in the future? It's like a lot of things will be better and a lot of things will be worse. And we'll see how many more things are better versus how many more things are worse. Right. Like, yeah. And I think too, it depends on like what things are worse and what things are better. Right. My hope is that like the prison industrial complex will be abolished. That's my deep hope. Right. But like, there's a lot of other things we need to figure out before that happens. Right. It's like, how does this alternative world building actually like play out in real time? And like, what does that look like? And I think too, like people do abolitionists so, so dirty when they're like, well, what do you suggest? Right. As if we just have all the answers. (laughs) And I, I think like the core of abolition is really about community building. Right. And so like, there's not going to be an abolitionist who's like, I have all the answers. I know everything because that's not what we're about. Mm -hmm. We're about collective organizing and like, coming up with solutions together because that's literally how we got here to this problem is like not everybody was included in the decisions that were made on this land that was stolen from indigenous people (laughs) while there were also folks who were enslaved. Right. So like when you have like an elect, a select group of elite individuals who are like making all the rules and laws, of course there's going to be major fucking problems. Mm -hmm. And I think abolition really challenges us to like not fall back into that and be like, I might not have all the answers, yeah. but I know that what's working is not right and it's not good. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to work with others to find a solution. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what I've learned recently is that like, in my opinion, the betterment of the world will come, will have to come from both um, the working class and the poor doing the work that they've always done, you know, because that's how, uh, like in the, in the, um, Dean Spade conversation, they talked about that. Yeah. Um, but I think 
social change also comes when rich people um, defy their class or buck their class. Yeah, like gotta give up that wealth, baby. Give up that power, redistribute it. Yeah, it takes like give both it up. sides. And and bec- I think like in the last maybe 100 years, I don't know, like more and more people have been bucking their class, as I call it. Because that's what I think FDR did. Um, because FDR came from like a very rich, wealthy machine politics family in New York. Mm. And he, um, he, he bowed to the working class and poor uh, movement. Like it was like these protests and it was like really a grassroots movement threatening to primary out um, senators and congressmen. And they like the pressure swelled up and he, it took him being like, you know what? Fucking they're right. Like that's why he got elected for four terms. We essentially wanted him to be president for life, even though he was our only concentration camp president. Oof. Yeah. We were like, you know what? That's how bad our presidents are. I, I tried to make a list of top 10 best presidents, ended up being a top 10 least terrible presidents. There's not a single American <laughs> president that I would ever characterize as good. Jimmy Carter. I, I like fact, Jimmy Carter. He got, he got I think the fact that like we have presidents on stolen land is such a dichotomy, right? Like mm. how could you even be good in that kind of setup? There's no good that can come of that. Well, like you said at the beginning, you would refuse the title of president. And that's, that's a good president. The <laughs> one who says like, are you fucking nuts? This is Yeah, awful. I would never fucking do that. I would yeah. never run for president to begin with. But if somehow somebody bestowed this upon me, I'd be like, okay, let's redor- restore indigenous sovereignty. Yeah. Next day. <laughs> like I would never take that power. Right. So all that being said, I'm... I, I call myself a globalist politically. Like mm-hmm. I believe one that like we have more in common in terms of our needs with poor people in China and in Mexico and all over the world than we do with rich people in the United States. Yeah. Um, so like class solidarity obviously makes, in my opinion, makes me a globalist. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe that to, to not have tax havens like the Cayman Islands you mm. need you need global cooperation and like i don't know how you're going to organize all these billions of people but like we have a un like i th- i feel like i believe in um and like often like the the heads of the un are like socialist former presidents of like luxembourg and stuff uh, which by the way is itself a tax haven so uh luxembourg come on <laughs> um so i don't know i believe in globalism and I'm, I like want to be an optimist and be like, I think there's a way to like infiltrate these global structures to, but I think I also think it would take a George Soros or a, or a Elon Musk to be like, you know what? I need to like change the system so that people like me aren't allowed to be as powerful as we are. Like no billionaire is a socialist. They're all neoliberals to certain degrees when they're on the left, they never advocate for, for dismantling the system that allowed them to become billionaires. Of course. And I think too, people like don't understand that you don't become a billionaire through hard work. You come, you become a billionaire through exploitation. Like it's necessary in order to become a billionaire because like, you got to imagine like if you worked for a hundred years and you made a million dollars every year, like that's how you would become a billionaire, Mm. like through hard work. Right. (laughs) 
That's mm. literally not possible in the current system that we live in. It's right. exploitation is required. Right. To There's too a many resources. So when right. people are like, yeah. I want to be the next Elon Musk, I'm like, are you sure about that? Mm. Are, are you really, is that what, is that what we're striving towards now? Um, and I think too, Foucault might challenge you rather than looking to the ruling class to infiltrate these systems and provide liberation, that the power is really with the people and that it's on us to overturn these systems of power that keep us at the bottom. Um, I think it's, but I don't think you can do one without the other. I think you need both. I do think you need rich people bucking their class in addition to the people. Because I'm an already, anarchist, so I'm like murder them all. <laughs> I mean, the French Revolution was, the Haitian Revolution and the French Revolution were both successful. So like, you can have a working class uprising. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, more particular. I learned that like the Haitian Revolution would have, like Haiti would be much better if, other countries um, like refused to do trade with Haiti after they gained independence because they were afraid of slave uprisings in other countries. Mm. And they were like, we can't do business with like a non white person, obviously. Um, mm. So it like fucked over Haiti's economy for like the first hundred years of its existence. Anyway. Yeah. I'm not too well versed on global politics. Not going to lie. Um, and I think that's like where my pitfalls are. Um, but I think too, like, I'm so weary of like outside folks telling other people like how they should govern themselves. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm a decolonial scholar, so I'm like, I'm not here for the colonialist governments. I'm also not here for the UN telling people like how they should organize things because also the UN has consistently failed on so many occasions to acknowledge and hold people accountable for like war crimes and other things, other egregious things that have happened globally. So I don't have any belief in these systems that have been built, right? Because I believe that they are there to maintain the power structure, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's just where I'm coming from. Uh, and I think this is like, just what it means to be an anarchist, to be like, no, I don't like this. So I'm going to scrap it and rebuild something different. And I think that's really the key, right? Kwama uh, Toure really encourages us to think about revolution, not only as destroying things, but as creating, mm. right? Because if someone's just like, all they talk about is destroying, 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 that's not radical. Mm. It's not revolutionary. Yeah. The real revolution comes in rebuilding mm -hmm. and imagining different worlds than the one we currently live under. And I guess right now I'm like less, I, I'm, I'm agnostic. Like I don't have an opinion as to whether destroying the systems will be better for us. I just know that like, I don't think that's the side that I'm on in terms of like how I think transformation, um, or in terms of how I'm going to affect transformation. Like I, I think my karma is to try and thread the needle, try and, um, try and infiltrate the system and use the key to break, to, to dismantle it or, or to transform it into like what I want. Um, mm. also because I, I plan on dying in the next, I don't know, like 30 years. Like I don't plan on living that long. Um, I would be, I can, would consider myself very lucky to live in my seventies, even mm. though most people in my family live in their nineties. I just, I, I like to think of life 
like as very fleeting. So <laughs> I'm like, I only have a few dozen years to like make an impact. Um, other than like teaching younger generations and giving wisdom, but like, I don't know. I'm just like, I'm just gonna not, not have too much anxiety about my position as long as I'm helping people and my, you know, my heart's and I do self check-ins, make sure my heart's in the right place. So anyway, totally. rant, rant over. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, AJ, for your time and your energy and these lovely questions. I really appreciate you having me on your podcast today. Oh my God. We've been crushing it. It's we're going on 90 minutes. Okay. So let's, maybe we can do a part two sometime. I think that would be really lovely. Totally. Yeah. Okay. I definitely think that like, You've got lots of other people to interview as well. So yes, I'm okay waiting my turn. <laughs> oh yeah. I already, Zoya is already, I'm already excited to talk with Yeah. Them, so they're um, so lovely. Thank you so much. This has been like really cleansing for me and mm -hmm. um, I feel invigorated and I really love you so much. Like I, you're, oh. you're so important to me, even though we just met. Thank you. Yeah. I have lots of love for you as well. And I'm really grateful for the space that you continue to hold for me and I'm really excited to see how this turns out. I think it's <laughs> going to be really lovely. Yeah, me too. Okay, well, I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna send us out on good days um, by SZA. So, um, cool. thank you again, Eli, and thank you to everybody who listened and for subscribing. And this is AJ, and this is I gotta give them